We live in a world of dynamic cyber threats, but one thing is clear, human behavior is the most vulnerable target for attacks. Welcome to Behave by CyberSafe, the foremost cybersecurity podcast focused on human cyber risk. Organizational awareness is no longer enough, so how will your team stay protected? Be sure to subscribe to Behave on your preferred listening app for cutting edge insights into our evolving industry and stay ahead of the shift to security behaviors and human risk quantification. Enjoy the episode. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the Behave podcast. My name is Monya Hoto. I'm the VP of Marketing here at CybeSafe. Today, you are in for an incredible treat to our audience, um, as I have got as my guest, Catherine Moore, the Director of IT, Compliance and Cybersecurity at Monday Pharma. Uh, Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here today. Well, it's a real pleasure to to have you, and I'm sure our listeners are in for what I think is going to be a thrilling conversation. Uh, just by way of starting off, Catherine, could I ask you, how did you end up as Director of IT Compliance and Cybersecurity at Monday Pharma? And, and, and please feel free to take us on a journey of your career up until this point. I think it's, it's really a fascinating uh, story. Of course. Uh, as you uh, say, um, I, I took probably not, not the typical way into cybersecurity that you, you might think, so... I started off um, in engineering. Engineering was actually something I wanted to do right from the age of seven, probably because my, my dad was an engineer and I, I looked up to him a lot. So I I actually got myself onto an engineering program when I was still at school with a local company, um, did a project with them, then decided to ask them if um, they felt like creating a new role that I could join them in. Um, which they very kindly did. They sponsored me through university to study engineering as well. And I, I spent about eight years working in automotive engineering, doing all sorts of things from helping set up production lines to spending a bit of time in the design office. I then moved to a, a much smaller automotive company where I was responsible for putting a new quality management system in place and getting certified to that. And then from the automotive industry, I moved into facilities management, still in a, an engineering slanted support role, uh, looking at continuous improvement. I think my boss noticed I was always asking questions about procedures and policies and noticing gaps in them and suggested that I might be quite good in a compliance role. So I moved from engineering into compliance and then that got broadened out to include quality as well. I did some health and safety management. And then five, about five years ago now, I moved to Monday Fowler. So it was the first time I'd ever worked in IT, but I'd, I'd done a lot in quality and compliance and risk management and, um, I joined Monday Pharma to, to take on responsibilities for quality and compliance within the IT team there. Um, and it, it was really good to sort of join, not knowing much about IT and the city questions because I hadn't got the background in it, so it was kind of okay. But also having a completely different slant on things was useful to be able to sort of challenge ways of working as well. While I was at Monday Farm, I got more and more involved in, in cybersecurity, particularly on the, on the governance side. And then my role expanded formally to include the cybersecurity elements. And uh, a big part of what I, I think about day to day now is very much along um, 
user awareness of cybersecurity threats. And what we need our users to know to make sure we keep our data safe, that kind of thing, as well as many other things that, uh, that I take a lead on. That, that is a fascinating journey, I have to say. Most of the guests that I have on the show actually come from a military background. So somebody coming from an engineering background and pivoting in that way to me is a first. So, so that's, that's quite interesting. And, 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 and really, um, I'm fascinated because it's quite a senior role, uh, Catherine. And yet this was your first time entering into IT and then, of course, broadening your remit uh, to cover, you know, many things, including now cyber. What was that like, that journey for you of going from that engineering kind of context into this IT and then broadening that scope in this, in this role? So I, I, I found it pretty interesting and exciting because I'd, I'd done a bit of a leap before when I moved from working in the automotive industry so those years management and I had to learn a lot of the new terminology there and you know different ways of doing things so it wasn't dissimilar moving into IT and it took me a while to understand the way things work in IT is definitely a lot more structured than it is in facilities management and there's a lot more frameworks and standards available because IT has been around as a, as a sort of an industry in its own right for longer. But I I really enjoyed learning more about how things fit together, how IT supports the business. And, and for me it was it was a really enjoyable transition. I thought, yeah, I'm really glad I've made this move. It it feels like the right thing for me. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And just, just in terms of, I know, you know, many of these journeys as you transition like that, you know, it's never, you're never really on your own. Have you had a lot of support from peers or uh, other industry players that have kind of helped you along the way and influenced your journey into, into this, into this role? Yeah, very much so. I mean, my, my boss at the time when I joined Monty Fala was very supportive of the fact I was, I was transitioning fresh into IT and was always available to answer questions. But I've got, you know, lots of people around me that uh, I can chat to about what's going on and, and get support I need. So, yeah, I, I don't think anyone has been um, unhelpful in terms of encouraging me to, to follow through with it and, and take that slightly different path from where I was previously, which has been fantastic. I think since I've been working in IT and involved in cyber particularly, um, one of the people that has um, influenced me most in the way I think it's probably Lance Bitzner from SANS Institute. came across him originally when I, I've been to some of the SANS conferences and done some of the training. And I, I just think he's fantastic at taking what can be quite complex concepts and actually making them relatable and actionable. So so one that really sticks in my mind is when he's looking at culture change models. So you've got things like Satir's five-stage change model, which is the one that has got the curve showing how things change over time. Um, you've got Cotter's eight-step model, and then you've got some cyber-specific models. There's one that the UK government uses and, and some others. And, and He's brilliant at sort of going through and saying, okay, you've got these different models. Here are the good things about them. Here are the drawbacks. And then he kind of condenses and simplifies it into to two very neat components. Um, and he calls them motivate and enable. So he says, if you're going to try and change the culture, 
focus on these two, focus on motivation. How do you incentivize the change? The kind of what's in it for me, you know, getting the, the path of least resistance and then look at the enabling. So how do you make sure that you're actually giving people the tools to do what you're asking them to do? You're giving them the skills because you, you might say, here's a brand new tool, go away and use it. But if you haven't educated them on how to use the tool, so they're lacking in those skills, then they're not going to adopt the change. So, yeah, I, I think Lance is brilliant at just simplifying and, and helping you understand sort of what you need to do in, in something that can be quite overwhelming. Um, he's a great person to follow on LinkedIn as well. He posts loads of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned Lance because um, actually when when we launched this podcast, he was our inaugural guest as somebody who is really seen no, as a... As a senior leader um, in, in in this industry, and and I reflect on some of the things that I've learned from Lance, for example, how you know he really does rage against this idea that you know humans are the weakest link in in the organization as far as security is concerned, and he says actually no, they are the um, the most prominent attack vector, and that's because of the over investment over the years in technology and the under investment in people, and I, and I wonder what you think about that, or whether you see similar things when it comes to uh, your organization. Yeah, so I completely agree. I think I think historically cybersecurity is definitely focused on the, the technical controls and, and why they're, they're really important. If you don't address the, the human elements, then you're leaving yourself wide open, um, for example, to phishing attacks and, and uh, malware and that kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I do cringe when I hear people say about um, people being the weakest link. It is one of those phrases that gets overused and I think it's very misunderstood, so I try not to use it myself. But so certainly I'm trying to make sure that we have more and more focus on um, how we help people understand what's important inside, but understand the part they play, why it matters, and sort of spend, you know, quite a lot of time thinking about that and in some ways as much time on that as the the technical controls to make sure you've you know covered the whole spectrum i agree i agree 100 percent. and i think the importance of language in this space you know can't be overstated i had a fascinating conversation with one of our industry peers Oge Udensi, who's who's running a similar program to you uh, at, a, at, a, at a bank in the city and, and and she's actually written some research on how language such as using weakest link and failure you know when it comes to phishing uh, simulations for example can actually have a detrimental impact on on on, on what we're trying to achieve and yet the, the industry has actually been biased towards using some of that what I would almost call dangerous language to try and achieve its its objectives. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Talking talking about uh, about phishing, uh, Catherine, because that's a nice segue. Phishing simulation and and click rates. You know, why does the industry have such an obsession uh, with these types of metrics um, in terms of what they want to measure? It's normally you know you know the phishing uh, uh, click data or completion rates for training. Why do you think you know the industry is kind of stuck in its ways in terms of those being the key measures that we go after? So I think it's it's pretty easy to to push out phishing simulations and measure click rates, and that's why people do it. So you you buy a tool that pushes out the simulation, it measures how many people click on it, it gives you nice graphs to circulate to your leadership teams, but actually it doesn't necessarily do a great deal to impact awareness of the users 
of what the, the phishing threats are, unless alongside that you're actually educating them about why they need to be alert to the dangers of phishing, the types of things they should look for, how they should report anything that's suspicious. And the, the, the effort really needs to go into that user education piece. Um, without that, you're not really going to find that your phishing simulation has any impact. It, it can be useful, I think, if you've got the education and you've got feedback to your users alongside it so that you're actually, if they um, fall for a phishing simulation and they click the link, something pops up to explain to them why they shouldn't have done this and what they should have done instead. I think that makes it a lot more effective, that sort of in-the-moment training. But if you just do the simulation and you measure the clicks, it's pretty meaningless, really. There's not much you can do with it other than say, yes, people have, uh, you know, this percentage of people fell for the fish, um, but you've probably got a huge percentage of people that didn't do anything with it because they didn't even notice the email as well. So we haven't educated them in any way by running that simulation. Catherine, I think you're absolutely right. And, and it just begs the question in my mind that, and I think a lot of peers in the industry would agree with you that those simulations alone and the metrics around them are not sufficient to actually protect people or organizations. But, but why do you think the, the industry is almost, has almost stagnated and has committed to deliver the same program year on year? And, and, and perhaps how do you encourage your team to innovate and push the envelope of, of, of what's available or, or different ways of thinking about the challenge that faces us as it pertains to cyber risk? Yeah, the, the question about why the industry is stagnated is, is an interesting one. I don't, I don't know whether it's because people are, are struggling to find the budget to do things in a slightly different way, or there's just, you know, a lot of pressures to, to do, to fulfill other commitments. I'm sure things like the COVID pandemic hasn't helped. Um, you know, there's lots of things going on in, in the world that have an impact on what money is available to spend on things. So I I'm, I think it'd be hard for me to say conclusively um, what's going on in terms of the broader picture. But I, I think part of it could be a lack of understanding um, from the budget holder's perspective of, of why we need to do more than just by a relatively cheap phishing tool. You know, the fact there are lots of other options out there. There's certainly more discussion around user education and awareness and supporting users' understanding, which is fantastic to see. But I, I don't know if there's enough being joined up between, you know, what do we do instead of just the phishing simulation on its own? Um, what I've been trying to do in Monday Farmer is rather than sort of big bang, let's go from doing this to doing something completely different is build on the, the basis we've got and, and gradually add on and add on and, and mature that way um, because that's a little bit easier to to manage within the, the constraints we've got, you know, the size of the team we have, et cetera. You can... It's also easier for the user base to get used to bit by bit gradual change rather than something fairly significant. So we've we've put a lot of emphasis on the awareness training, helping people understand why these things are important, 
if we see any trends, then we might put out some information um, across the business to explain what we've seen, what people need to watch for, um, so they don't fall for anything themselves. Um, even examples of things that have happened to, to senior leaders in the organization, you know, obviously get our commission first. Um, but those can be really powerful to say, look, you know, this person had this come to them and they, they didn't fall for it, which is great. Um, make sure that this doesn't happen to you as well. Um, so, yeah. I think that's fascinating. And, and I think that's really brave, actually, to get your senior leadership to, you know, open up to some of the threats that that kind of comes across there, their, their, uh, that, that, that is targeted at them. And, 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 and I'm particularly kind of sensitive to the fact that you work in pharma and, you know, that that's obviously got some regulatory frameworks and, and, and you know, compliance driven kind of constraints. Do you find regulation a help or a hindrance when it comes to the human aspect uh, within the industry as a whole? So I'm going to say it's a bit of both. It, it can be a hindrance. It can be a, a help. So compliance is is all important in the pharmaceutical industry, and that that's completely understandable. The regulation is there for a good reason. And if you look back at, at um, examples such as the the disaster with the the use of the tranquilizer drug thalidomide that was used in pregnant women in the 50s and 60s. You know, they ended up having children that either were born with severe deformities or miscarriage. The, the UK put the Medicines Act of 1968 in place as a direct consequence of that disaster. They realised that the, the clinical trials and the testing were just not rigorous enough to understand the potential impacts on, on the pregnant women and their unborn babies. So, you know, I, I, I hate to put pharmaceutical regulation down. It is there for a really good reason. But historically, I think it has had a tendency to encourage a bit of a tick box approach when it comes to compliance. So, for example, you know, do this training, tick it off in the system, and then we can say, yes, it's all good, and we can show that in an audit. On, on the other hand... There's, there's something good about the rigor of knowing you've got to put out regular training and the regulation encourages that, that sort of environment. So you, you can't get away with doing nothing easily, but it, it's about understanding how you use the opportunities you've got to put something out there that, that makes a difference to people. So if, you're going to, if you know you've got to put out some training that has to be recorded in your systems, so you've got an audit trail. Don't just push out a policy document that's very dry and um, people will see, skip through it, make sure they get to the bottom so they can tick the box and then move on none the wiser. Make sure that you've got some interactive quizzes in there that really test some of the key concepts. Come back to things later, so if you've, you've put out a a policy document and some key principles. A few months later, come back to those key principles, remind them what they're about in using a different approach, whether it's a video or something like that, as well as all the things that you should do to support that that aren't recorded in quite the same way as, as the regulators are looking for. So, you know, what are you doing with the leadership teams and, and then a direct reports to help them understand what's important 
how how much contact are you having with the business to understand things from their perspective? And and I, I think the regulators are getting better at pushing for these things. There's a there's a lot less emphasis now on just the tick box compliance. There's definitely more emphasis on how are you measuring the effectiveness of your training, which is fantastic to see. So there's some good stuff happening, but I think there's still a way to go because there can still be that tick box mentality that, that some people have, which can be quite dangerous and, and kind of gives a, almost a false sense of security. I think you're absolutely right, Catherine. I think, you know, I wish I could extend this conversation for an hour just to dine out on this because there's 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 so much there. You know, first of all, thank you for sharing that, you know, that that anecdote about why compliance is necessary, particularly in pharma. I mean, you know, the story you shared there moves us all when we think about it and and really hear and read some of those stories that we do need guardrails in certain industries, otherwise things go really, really badly. But then you then bring in this other notion that, you know, that is not enough on its own if you don't actually think about how to make those concepts engaging and memorable and indeed helpful uh, for the people um, for whom they have been created. So so the onus is almost on us as security professionals to, to figure out how to tailor the types and formats of content as well as the delivery of that content for it to, 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 to be helpful at that point when somebody actually does need to make a better security decision. I, I, I do think that is in and of itself profound. So if I had to kind of put you on the spot, what would you like to see from a regulatory perspective that would you know, nudge us in that direction? You've definitely talked about engagement, but what, 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 what could change regulatory-wise that you think could be, could be impactful? So, I mean, I think I touched on this, the fact that regulators are now asking to see a bit more than just has this training been completed. They're looking to see evidence of what's in the training actually happening in practice, whether that's you know, some records that come from having followed a particular process or whether it's some form of effectiveness follow-up, uh, maybe retesting people on the key principles. So I, I think that's great. I think the regulators are also starting to get more of an understanding of how IT is important in terms of, uh, you know, how, how the pharmaceutical industry operates, what controls need to be in place there. And, and from a cyber perspective, I think that, that again, helps with with the regulators sort of watching out for the for the right things in place, you know, all the systems being used, um, validated so that you know that the drugs being produced are being produced in in the way that you you, you think they're being produced, and you know what's written down on paper, that kind of thing. Have we got the right controls in place to make sure that data related to the the drug products doesn't um, get leaked out of the company inappropriately? So I think I think that's that's all fantastic, um, but yeah, I, I still think there's quite a lot of work to do, and it would be great to see even more awareness of of how how important cyber is when it comes to the controls in the pharmaceutical industry. I think. 
That's interesting, Catherine. And and just on that, you've talked about the you know the evolution almost in maturity on the regulation side. We're seeing some changes happening on the cyber side, aren't we? You know, for example, roles are shifting from security awareness manager to human cyber risk manager. You know, does this make sense to you? And and is that a proxy for where the industry is going? What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, so I I think I mean changes in in names of roles. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, does it really make a difference? But I, I think it can do. If you talk about a security awareness manager, it, it kind of screams, let's put some training into an e-learning system and, and tick that box. Human cyber risk management just, just sounds very different and it's really describing some of the nuances and complexities of it. It's not as simple as pushing some training out. Managing risks is really complicated. Understanding what your risks are and figuring out how you're going to mitigate them is, you know, an ongoing thing that you have to do day to day. It requires you to understand what drives certain behaviors and the specific threats that you need to address through a cyber perspective and how you bring those together. So, you know, do you understand your company culture? When are you going to go and, and push out initiatives from a cyber awareness perspective? Because if you do something that just doesn't align culturally, it's not going to sit well. What are the key risks that the company as a whole is worried about? And how does that align with the cyber risk you're trying to manage? And I, I think calling it human cyber risk management just just aligns with with that need to focus on the risk much better. I, I I couldn't I couldn't agree anymore with you. That that is exactly right. I think, and 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 of course, you know, the the once you are identified as being kind of broader, not just in terms of the remit, but depth in terms of the challenge that you're addressing through that role. I think you know, think that was that that's magnetic. I think it will attract more budget. I think it will attract more support. But actually, uh, the impact that it's having on the on the business, I think, will actually surface and become even more prominent and evident than than perhaps if we if we kind of pigeonhole it into uh, a training program, for example. So I think that 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 is key. Catherine, just switching lanes a bit as we as we kind of come to the end of our time, and thank you so much for being generous with your time. There are a lot of our listeners listening in on this episode that are wondering, and indeed, you know, they're starting out in their careers and perhaps are seeking a bit of advice. You've now been in this role, I think you've said, you know, five or six years now. What advice do you have for those coming behind you in terms of how they can navigate uh, careers in tech and security in particular? What are you thinking? Sure. So I I think it's it's really important to have an open mind to not be afraid of asking questions. I, I did that all the time when I came into IT, and um, particularly when I started getting involved in cybersecurity. I mean, as a female as well, it, it can be harder. It's still quite male-dominated. And, you know, don't get me wrong, my colleagues are lovely and I've had no issues at Lundy Farmer. I've got a great bunch of people I work with. But um, there is a tendency for women to be a little bit more cautious than men of, of, say, applying for a role that maybe they don't think they meet all of the criteria for. I think there's been some research that shows that's the case. I I would always think, well, you know, are there elements of the job that you've got experience that's relevant to? Do you relish the challenge of picking up the rest of it and learning more about it? Because ultimately, if, uh, if you're keen to progress and you want to keep learning, 
you don't want to step into a job where you know everything and you can do it all from day one. That would be pretty dull, I think. So, so I would say just take a punt, go for it, ask the questions, get yourself on, on training courses to learn more, make sure you build a strong network. Cyber is changing all the time. It's really important to kind of know what's going on around you because things don't stand still. So, you know, find people on LinkedIn that you can um, follow and, and reach out to get all the conferences and, and just keep up with that, that network and, and make sure that, you know, you, you've got people to talk to and run ideas past as well, and whether they're colleagues within your own company or outside, so you don't want to become insular. But cyber is a really exciting place to, to work and uh, I would encourage anyone that's tempted to look at it in a bit more detail, see if it, you think it's um, the right thing for you and, and go for it. I, I thank you for that. And, and that's going to be a gift to our listeners. I'm actually talking to you today on the sidelines of the Cloud and Cyber Expo here at the Excel. And I can completely concur with your perspective that this is a male-dominated industry. <laughs> that's, that is the truth. And it would be refreshing for there to be you know, more perspectives on the issues that we're trying to tackle than what has been historically the case. You know, I love your idea about having an open mind, asking questions, being brave, finding people who you can reach out to mentor you. But in particular, this thing about networking. These are, these, are, these are nuggets I think that our listeners are going to absolutely be grateful for. Final one, final one, Catherine. I know I've taken up a lot of your time. If you had to name one book, which has had the greatest impact on your career to date, what would that be? Yeah, so I, th I think the book that I would pick would be Nudge, which is by Richard Thaler and Kiss Sunstein. So it's not specifically about cyber, and I think that's partly why I like it, because it's actually applicable to almost everything. But when you're thinking about cybersecurity, the ability to be able to nudge people um, kind of comes into its own. So, for example, if, if you're looking to drive a particular behavior um, in your users, such as, for example, using the, the tools that the company provides for data storage and sharing of data, and you've got another behavior that might be far less desirable, such as using free online cloud storage, then you know, if you think about oh, what can you do to nudge people towards the correct behavior and make it much harder for them to use the, the uh, undesired behavior. So you might, for example, block the upload of, of company data to free online cloud storage and help make sure you've got the education and the, the training and you're helping people develop their skills in how to use the company tools. And they've got, you know, the shortcut to it on the desktop. And then that will help them follow the path of least resistance. So I, I love Nudge theory and, and all that it encompasses and that, that book I've found to be really helpful. Catherine, thank you. Thank you so much for that recommendation. I actually have a copy of Nudge on my bookshelf and to my shame, I have not made my way through it. So this is just a nudge to me uh, to pick it up and then uh, actually do something, do something about it. Um, and, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, and indeed with that I want to just thank you Catherine for your time to our listeners my guest today has been Catherine Moore uh, the Director of IT Compliance and Cybersecurity from Mundy Pharma Catherine thank you so much and hopefully we'll see you once again on the show in the future thank you so much Monia thank you for having me